Uh, please open a Bible up to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 23. It's on page 1166 if you're using the church Bible. Before we get started, I want to reassure everybody I double-checked. I have all pages of notes this week, so there won't be, hopefully, any hiccups. At the end of uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, he finally addresses what's really the occasion for writing this letter. Uh, he is writing this letter because he received a monetary gift from the Philippian church to support him as he was in prison. Uh, in ancient prisons, you weren't provided food and clothing. Your friends had to give to provide those for you. And the Philippians, through this man Epaphroditus, sent this gift. Paul receives it, and he's writing a letter for Epaphroditus to take back to Philippi with him. Now, uh, it might seem strange to us that he delays addressing the main issue till the end, but when this letter was received by the Philippian church, it would have been read out loud in the congregation. And so these would have been the very last words that the Philippian church heard. It's a thank you of sorts, but as you listen, note that Paul never actually uses the word thank you either in this passage or in the letter as a whole. In fact, in some ways, his update reads a little bit more like a quarterly report on an investment than a thank you note. Here now as I read Philippians 4, 10 through 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, every culture and indeed every family has different customs for exchanging gifts. Families have uh, different unspoken assumptions about what Christmas gift exchange looks like or birthdays. Some families open all the gifts at once and other families take turns opening gifts. Everybody has to be hugged. You show the gift to everybody and then you go on to the next gift. Uh, all day thing. They stop for lunch in the middle. It keeps going. 
And it just seems normal. It's what you grew up with. This is how everybody does it until you get married and you go to your in-law's house and you think, holy cow, what is, it's like I'm in a foreign country here. Birthday gifts, same thing. Some families exchange birthday gifts with adult siblings. Uh, other families, you know, you would never buy a birthday gift for your sibling. Well, the Greco-Roman world had its own conventions for gift giving, for exchanging gifts. But Paul's response to the Philippians gift would have been unexpected in his day as it is in ours. There's no direct thank you. And certainly there's no implication that Paul is now indebted to the Philippians or that he owes them anything. Now to understand what's going on, why Paul handles the gift in this way, we need to consider three things. What Paul has, what Paul has received, and what Paul offers. And I warned you kids, the main points are not really that great today. They're just three alliterations. So look out for them. Paul begins by telling uh, uh, the Philippians, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. This word revived uh, kind of means like budding or blossoming. You know, the trees go dormant all winter, and then now it's just about time that the cherry trees start budding. That's what he's saying is you, you were concerned for me all along, but you had no way to get a gift to me. You had no way to express your support for me, but now it's budding again. But notice what he rejoices in. It's not the gift per se, but knowing that the Philippians still have concern for him. It's really the relationship that he's rejoicing in. But then the next sentence in verse 11 is a little bit funny. When we write a thank you note, what do we say? We say something like, thank you so much for this thoughtful gift. It's exactly what I needed. Or I've really wanted this for a long time. Thank you. But what does Paul say? Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It's almost like he's saying, thank you for the gift, but I don't really need it. But thank you anyways. It's not that Paul isn't grateful. So he wants to be very careful the Philippians don't get the wrong idea. Uh, maybe you've gotten those letters from charities that say, thank you for uh, your gift last year and our need is even greater this year. And it's kind of, you know, implying like, wouldn't it be great to give a donation this year? And I don't know what the charity is saying, good, good boy to stray dogs or something, you know, helping, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, my grandma gets all these things and we just throw them away because we know she'll support them. She, anyways, uh, Paul's, uh, that's neither here nor here, uh, there. Uh, the point is Paul's trying to say he's not for another gift. In Paul's day, even to mention a need would be considered a low-key way of asking for help. But that's not what Paul's doing here. Why? Because of what Paul already has. What does Paul have? Paul has Christ contentment. There's that first theme I want to reflect on. Christ contentment. I don't know about uh, you, but our family at least is excited for the new Indiana Jones movie this year. Okay, I know the last one wasn't great. I know Harrison Ford's 80, but we're still cautiously optimistic willing to be disappointed. And as I, one of the things I think makes Indiana Jones such an attractive character is that he can handle any situation. He's in the lecture hall on university campus. He's fist-fighting Nazis in the jungle. He's in the city. He knows how to talk Italian. He can translate anything. Uh, and really, that's kind of our, uh, what we want in our action heroes, isn't it? From James Bond to Jack Ryan, from Mission Impossible to MacGyver, we want heroes who can handle any situation. 
who's calm and collected no matter what circumstances they face. Well, Paul isn't far from this. He says he doesn't really need the Philippians' gift because he has learned how to handle every circumstance. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Well, wouldn't you like to be like that? To be content in any circumstance? To be calm and collected no matter what you're facing? Well, do you want to know what the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need is? What is the secret? Paul tells us in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, this, uh, the ancient Stoics agreed with Paul that being content in all circumstances was a virtue. It's what they strive for, being content in all circumstances. But they saw the way to being content as self-sufficiency. The way to live above need and abundance is to be self-sufficient, self-sustaining. The Stoics would have liked our modern action hero ideal. Train yourself to be self-sufficient. Learn martial arts, mechanics, martini making, how to survive in the wilderness, at gala events, wherever you're at. Be self-sufficient. Well, Paul says he's learned the secret. It took training. It's a learning process. But he didn't learn self-sufficiency. He learned Christ dependency. Paul's power isn't some skill set that he's learned. Uh, you remember Napoleon Dynamite, girls want guys with skills. He's not saying I've learned all the skills. He says, I have derived what I have from Christ. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, uh, 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. is actually one of the first Sunday school verses I can ever remember memorizing. And the reason I remember learning it is because later that week after school, when I was about seven, I was trying to climb an alder tree that had fallen and was hung up at about a 50-degree angle. And my sister reminded me of this verse as an encouragement. But then I fell off and landed on my back in a patch of nettles, got the wind knocked out of me, was stung all over. What went wrong? Can't I do all things through him who strengthens me? Of course, when I was seven, I was young, but let's be honest, isn't this how grown-ups often think too? As long as I put a vaguely Christian veneer on my to be able to do it. Or if I have a Christian bumper sticker on my business, I should be able to do anything I set my mind to. But remember Paul's context. Where is he writing from? He's under house arrest in Rome where he's chained up under guard. He can't break his chains. He can't travel to Philippi, although he said several times in this letter that he longs to see them again. He can't even leave his house. What does this mean that I can do all things through him who strengthens me? It means that he has learned Christ contentment, and so he can face any circumstance that God leads him to. In every situation, he leans on Christ no matter how difficult that situation gets. Earlier in the letter, uh, Paul describes the same idea, Christ contentment like this. He says, for, to, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
And that's really the secret of Christ's contentment. If, as Paul says in chapter 3, I have been found in Christ, if Christ Jesus has made me his own, then in whatever situation I find myself, I can be content. To live is Christ. I am united to him. He is with me and in me through his Holy Spirit. Paul says when that's your mindset, you can face anything. You can face plenty and hunger, abundance and need with confidence. Even more, Paul uh, describes Christ's own mission as leaving his riches in glory, emptying himself by taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself in obedience. And so if for me to live as Christ, then Christ's own mindset, that mission should continue in our lives. And we can face any circumstance with Christ's contentment. In fact, uh, Paul kind of hints at how this works out in verse 22, just to jump ahead briefly. When he's sending this final greeting, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. Okay, he's been arrested for preaching the gospel. He appealed to Caesar. When he's on the ship in the storm, he preaches to the guards and to the sailors. Now he's under house arrest. Okay, finally, he can't be preaching anymore. We'll know what's happening. Even the guards and servants, members of Caesar's own household, are converting under Paul's witness. This is what it looks like in any circumstance to face it. Well, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, I can do all things through him and strengthens me. It's easier said than done. It's easier said than done. It's easy to say for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, but actually living out Christ's contentment takes work. And so in verse 11 and 12, Paul twice says he had to learn how to face every situation. It's a hard-won lesson that takes time, work, and discipline. God's school is often painful. Christ's contentment isn't the sort of thing you can learn in a comfortable, sheltered place. Uh, think about Psalm 23 that many of us know by heart. Uh, the great promise is the Lord is my shepherd, that he walks with me. But where does he walk with me? In the valley of the shadow of death. What does that mean? Through cancer, through losing your job, through uh, death of loved ones. The valley of the shadow of death, even the most extreme circumstances. The promise is that the shepherd will be with you, not that you'll never have to pass through that valley. In verse 14, Paul returns to the Philippians' gift. Although I didn't really need your gift because I had Christ's contentment, nevertheless, you did good. It was kind of you to share in my troubles. And here we see the second theme in this passage in verses 14 through 18. What does Paul have? Christ's contentment. What does he receive? Gospel generosity. Gospel generosity. Christ's contentment transforms how we think about our circumstances. If Christ is with us in any situation, we can handle any situation. But it should also transform how we think about our resources. And this leads to gospel generosity. John Calvin observes that it may actually be harder to learn to live faithfully in seasons of abundance than in seasons of need. When we are in need, we know that we need God, and so we turn to him in prayer. When we're in a season of abundance, things are going well, we have plenty, our job's going great. It is, in fact, more spiritually dangerous 
we're at risk of forgetting God. And so we need to cultivate gospel generosity. Well, in verses 14 through 18, Paul tells us three ways or gives us three ways to think about what giving should look like. First, in verses 14 through 16, Paul says that giving is an investment in the work of the gospel, in the work of Christ. It furthers the spread of the good news. It sustains the work of Christ's church. See, in verse 14, it's not just the Philippians gave Paul a gift, but he says they shared or participated in his troubles. Through their giving, the Philippians come alongside Paul as partners in his work. Paul says this has been their consistent pattern. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me uh, help for my needs once and again. The Philippians, uh, Paul says, entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. That's technical language for business partnership. Setting up accounts with gains and losses, uh, shipping and receiving, that kind of stuff. Similarly, in verse 18, Paul says, I have received full payment. Again, that's not what you say when you get a Christmas gift, is it? I received full payment from you, Grandma. Thanks. Uh, no, that's, that's the language of business partnership. It's saying you've done what you ought to since we're partners in this together. And so when we give to various ministries, uh, it's not just a tax write-off or a way to ease our conscience. Gospel generosity is an investment in the work of God's kingdom. So being able to invest in gospel work like supporting our church or various church plants or RUF or missionaries should be a joy. And we should approach our giving more like entrepreneurs than philanthropists. A philanthropist has tons of money and so they give some away for tax breaks. An entrepreneur risks what they have for the sake of an endeavor. And so if we have that kind of entrepreneurial mindset, it means we thoughtfully evaluate how we're giving. Is it effective? Are we giving uh, as much as we ought to? It means sharing in the troubles of the ministries we support. It means entering into partnership. It means following up on your investment, making sure that your money is being used well. Uh, second, in verse 17, Paul says, giving is for your own good. Again, Paul wants to make it clear he's not trying to ask for another gift from the Philippians. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul wants the Philippians to practice gospel generosity because it is for their good. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Uh, all the way back in chapter 1 at the beginning of the letter, Paul prayed that the Philippians would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, when Christ returns, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God. Now Paul says this gift that the Philippians have given is precisely the sort of fruit that he's been praying for. Indeed, it is to their credit before God. Giving is an investment in the work that God is doing in the world, but it's also for our own good because it's an internal and eternal investment that matures on the day of Christ. That's when we see the benefit of this investment. And then third, in verse 18, Paul gives us another image 
uh, that gives us a third way to think about gospel generosity. He says that giving is an offering to God. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He's saying the Philippians' gift of money is like a temple sacrifice. It's a fragrant offering, pleasing and acceptable. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, uh, sacrifices are described as being fragrant or having a pleasing aroma. Well, at our house, we set up the coffee pot with the timer the night before, and some days when I don't feel like getting up with my alarm, I smell the coffee has brewed, and that gets me out of bed. That's the kind of idea, that pleasing aroma. Or maybe if you have a, a, a spouse who loves you and gets up and cooks bacon in the morning before you're even up and you're smelling that, I mean, that's the, the sacrifice would have been meat grilling over an open fire. That's the smell, the pleasing aroma uh, that Paul's talking about here. And this picture of sacrifice then reminds us of two things about gospel generosity. First, gospel generosity is a sacrifice. And sacrifice means sacrificing. It, it's costly. Uh, if we're giving generously, it will affect our standard of living. But second, gospel generosity is received by God himself as an acceptable and pleasing sacrifice. It's an act of worship. It's, a, it, it's part of a relationship between ourselves and not just another person, but God himself who creates and sustains all things. Again, gospel generosity is not a lesson you learn overnight. It's a hard lesson to learn. And this year, $300 billion will be spent on advertising in the United States or more to convince you not to be content and to buy things so that you can find acceptance with your peers. What does Paul say? Look, gospel generosity will accept, uh, affect your standard of living. You maybe won't drive as nice of a car as you might otherwise, or go on as extravagant of vacations, or maybe it just means that you can't go to the coffee stand like you'd like to. It will affect your standard of living. But generosity is a sacrifice acceptable to God. Who needs acceptance with peers that marketing offers you when God himself accepts your gift? Well, this leads to the third theme in this passage in verses 19 through 23. Even today, uh, gift giving is often, uh, and receiving is often reciprocal, even if it's not obligatory. Okay, how many years in a row are you going to keep giving a friend a birthday present if they never get you a birthday present and they never give you a thank you card or anything like that? At some point you just have to say, you know what, this is not the kind of relationship I have with that friend. Or if someone shows up at a Christmas party with gifts for you and you weren't planning on getting them a gift, or maybe Valentine's this week, you know, that sort of a thing, it's, it's actually awkward if with a one-sided gift there's no reciprocation. Exchanging gifts isn't an obligation. It's not a legal contract, okay? You can't sue your grandma for not giving you a Christmas gift, and yet, nevertheless, there is sort of expectations that govern that. Well, in Paul's day, reciprocal gift giving was a big deal. Again, it's not a legal thing. It's not a loan. It's not a payment. But it was social glue that held society together. Giving gifts always put the receiver under obligation, 
So one Greco-Roman proverb went like this, give something and get something. Or another, one hand washes the other. We'd say, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. That's the logic that ran Roman society. The very wealthy gave public gifts to the city. So they built public bathhouses, they threw big festivals, they held Olympic games, those sorts of things. And in return, they got from the city honor and loyalty. At a lower level, gift swapping was how the poor got by. Okay, I have two robes, uh, I'll give you one, and now when I need something down the road, you give it back to me, that there's this reciprocal relationship. Gifts aren't loans or trades, but once a uh, Bible scholar writes, gifts in the ancient world did create circular exchange. Something was always expected to come back to the giver, even if only gratitude or honor. Okay, well, we've seen that Paul already has Christ's contentment. He's received gospel generosity. What does Paul offer back? How does he reciprocate? What does he offer in return? How does he complete this circular gift exchange? Paul offers God's grace. Paul offers God's grace, and that's the third theme, God's grace, that ends our passage and ends our whole letter. Verse 17 says, I am well supplied having received your gift. And then do you see verse 19 uses the same language. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You've supplied my needs. God will supply your needs. Here Paul radically departs from the Greco-Roman gift-giving expectations because he recognizes that gift-giving is not simply a horizontal relationship between one, uh, you know, a human-level exchange, but gift-giving and receiving also has to take into account both the giver and receiver's relationship with God. Gift-giving always takes place in in front of God, as it were. And so Paul doesn't say, I'm eternally in your debt, or I'll do something for you when I get a chance, but rather he says, you have supplied my need, my God will supply every need of yours. It's like, uh, you know, sometimes people say, I've got a guy that can fix your car or something like that. That's what Paul's saying here. I've, I've, my God, I've got a guy who will supply your needs, but it's, but it's God who created all things. Again, we need to be careful not to misread this as God will supply every want of yours. That's what we'd like to read, isn't it? But that's not what Paul says. He's just told us that the secret of contentment means that even when we're brought low, when we face hunger and need, we depend on Christ, and that's what we need. And so how does God supply every need? According to his riches in glory, or we might say according to the riches of his glorious nature, in Christ Jesus. First and most fundamentally, God gives grace to, to meet our needs in Christ Jesus. Christ himself is the gift of God. Through the work of Christ Jesus, God meets our most fundamental human needs. And that's the basis for being content in any situation, that's the basis for our generosity. What Paul offers is the most valuable thing he knows of. Uh, we already heard earlier in the service from chapter 3, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I count everything as loss 
and rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So Paul's offering the most valuable thing he knows of, the grace of God in Christ. This promise is so wonderful. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, that all Paul can do at this point in verse 20 is break out in praise. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God provides for our needs according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus, and we return to God glory forever and ever, even though there's this reciprocation. And then after that note of praise, Paul closes his letter with some greetings for the saints, for those who are set apart for God's own purposes in Christ Jesus. That's what a saint is. But Paul isn't leaving the theme of grace behind. He's reminding us that God's grace not only transforms our individual lives as it meets our deepest needs, but it creates a community. Being set apart as a saint uh, for God's own purposes, being called to holiness, is the result of God's grace given in Jesus Christ. And so God's grace then creates this family of saints. And so the, the community in Rome is greeting the community in Philippi, and the community in Philippi greeting the community in Rome. And then finally, the last word in this letter, and if we took the time, really every theme in this letter almost is packed into this little verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That's our fundamental need, is grace, the gift of God, that the Lord God of Israel, who entered into covenant with Abraham, has come as Jesus the Messiah, so that we can have the grace of God. And it's not just an external thing, but what does Paul say? That it would be with your spirit, that it's in your inner life and transforms you. That Christ with you by his spirit changes your spirit. That's what we really need, that gift of grace. That's the starting point of Christian contentment. When the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with your spirit, then you can say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, and face any and every circumstance. When the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with your spirit, that's the starting point for gospel generosity. When we receive the gift of God, we look on our own resources in a totally different way. We look for opportunities to use our resources to further God's work rather than our own desires. So what Paul offers at the end is what we all need, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with our spirits. Let's pray. Lord, you see us as we've sung this morning. You know us. We thank you that even in the most difficult circumstances, we can be content because we have Christ Jesus. We ask that you would be at work by your Holy Spirit transforming us. For some of us, the challenge today may be that we are discontented, that we really don't know the peace that comes from union with Christ, from being united to Christ Jesus. Lord, I ask by your spirit that you would be challenging those people, that you would be pouring your grace into their lives even now, that they might put faith in Christ Jesus, they might trust in him. Others of us, Lord, we know Christ is our Lord. We confess that to be true. 
And yet there's parts of our lives that need to be transformed yet. Teach us, your people, to be content in any and every circumstance. Paul says it's a lesson that took learning. Help us, Lord, to not flinch from the lessons that you have before us. Help us to be faithful, to learn the lessons you are trying to teach us. And then, Lord, we ask that you would transform the way we think about our resources and use our resources, that we would be characterized by gospel generosity, giving to further the work of your kingdom and your good news. Indeed, God and Father, we ask that the glory be to you forever and ever. Amen. Let's now rise to our feet and confess together the faith that we hold 